Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Angel in the Forest. We are on page 270, and the chapter heading is The Third Age of New Harmony. So we've come to the end uh, for New Harmony as far as the utopias are concerned. Um, three, four and a half. Um, the Rapites. New Harmony is finished, and the Owenites New Harmony is finished. So I'm assuming now it's just a little town. As it continues to be, I saw from my friend, I'm double-checking with her, I think she went camping in New Harmony. So I've messaged her to make sure that that's what she did, because that would be really cool, and it would be, I'd be interested to ask her what she thought of the place. It's a bit of a drive from where I am, so I doubt I will be able to make a trip there. Anytime soon. Maybe, though. To be regenerated is an experience engendered by emotion, elation, enthusiasm, intuition, but rarely by reason or the perpetual vivisection of reality. The soul, when it end, retires within itself, is its own master of events. Only he who feels deeply can tell how the woodpecker becomes the unadulterated angel, how the sewer cleaner becomes a god, though such transitions like that from all to nothingness are always going on. After the departure of the Owenite, New Harmony settled down to normal. Rationalism, like an embryo in a bottle, was a form which perished before its realization. Rationalism, William McClure believed, had contained too many elements of fantasy to ensure its birth into this world. It was not only the unrealized embryo, it was also the bogus angel. This section of the earth was, however, no more a curse than any other, and likely to suffer few permanent ills from its having been the scene of two utopias. Life, in spite of excessive attempts to alter it, had witnessed few alterations. A change in the orientation of human life was not held impossible, but rather that it must come about over a period of centuries. The sewer painted a drop curtain, which showed the falls of Niagara and a rattlesnake as the two features most characteristically American. Old Neef, freed from baby tending, was persuaded to exercise his lungs in a community orchestra. Madame F. was, if anything, even more high-minded, for though she had fallen in a utopia, she was now restored to her former position of supremacy. Thomas Say was, if anything, even more wrapped up in his con conchology, as now he did not have to dig potatoes in the hot sun. Nobody was prostrated by the light of an angel on his way through the cornfields, or if he was, that was not William McClure's business or subject of, an, of inquiry. Nor were there many evidences of pure reason which had mixed the truth in with too much imagination, too many cherubim who were birds. There were no such things officially as meta-empirical diamonds, no diamonds in this community, but the empirical ones worn by Madame F., dear soul, a genuine action would explain itself. William McClure could not see that existence as a whole has a purpose or universal meaning. How man's mind could ever know it, or what purpose it would have to him if he did. All knowledge was but partial. William McClure attributed the fall of man to the useless manufacture of words, supposition that for every noun there is a shape in reality. Hence, if one uses the word unicorn, it follows that there must be a unicorn in time and space. 
Even the most beautiful language or attempt to populate vacuums, he believed a poor substitute for a shoemaker's last and a strip of rawhide. One pair of shoes was better than droves of primrose-colored unicorns harnessed to diamond-studded plows, better than that which passes human understanding. It would be useless to worry about death, considering that men are torn from themselves while still living and dwindle at last into nothing, though their hearts continue to beat as in their unthinking youth. William McClure dropped, in fact, existential determinism, either religious or rational, questions as to beginning and end, questions as to whether the universe is made up of one or many truths or is all a pack of lies, questions as to whether man can bring into his own frame the principles of cosmic organization or whether such principles are already mysteriously in operation like the canker at the heart of the rose. The fact remained a rose and a cabbage would be two different things, with separate sensations upon the smeller of the smell, whether in a religious or a rationalistic state of mind. There was an external reality. To trade a loaf for a lily was so much foolishness. When men realized their propensity to trade something for nothing, they would be better off than now. The word of a celestial butterfly would never change the course of any mortal butterfly. (laughs) Sorry, I had to read this line again, because when men realized their prosperity... Propensity, sorry. Okay, I read it wrong, that's why. When men realized their propensity to trade something for nothing, they would be better off than now. It would be useless to attempt to engraft man's reasons, reason upon the tree of life, since man had no special organ of reason, and such a tree has, was never seen on earth. Plenty of apple, plenty of hemlock, but no tree of life that William McClure knew of. Similarly, what was mankind? William McClure had seen to know such animal, many Toms, Dicks, Harrys, but no mankind. A shoemaker without a philosophy was better than a philosopher without shoes. Music of the Spears, not worth his old shoe, William McClure thought. Happiness of the universe, not worth his old straw bonnet. Any goodness or any evil of man, not worth an empty convent. Life was life. The old gazette gave up the ghost, and the disseminator took its place without so much as a change in the course of earth through space, evidently without so much as a blackbird falling, though a night motto, ignorance is the fruitful cause of human misery, was abandoned, and with it an inquiry into outlandish subjects such as a marvelous millennialism. We ought not like the spider to spin a web from our own reasons, but like the bee, visit every store and choose the most useful and best, the disseminator stated. Now, where there had been two utopias, there was a community of self-dependent workers, not one of whom looked forward to a three-hour working day, an age-old pension plan, or heaven on earth. At William McClure's seminary, neither a city as measured by the burnished reed nor rectangular, students worked for room, board, and clothing, exchange for education, the practice of manual labor, such as house-building, farming, and sewing. In the four corners of the cruciform church, shoemaking, cabinet-making, Carpentry, tool, and tin plate departments were consistently enlarged. Everything went forward most harmoniously, though there was no public discussion as to harmony. Whether society might be considered as a mass of matter, maintaining its balance so long as each molecule, or man performed its movements in correct relation with every other, in such a way that no slight disturbance caused a crack in the whole, was not asked. The philosophic apparatus was confined to a chemical laboratory, the only demonstrable evidence it was considered, being that uncolored by memory and imagination, and which could be placed in isolation under a glass jar. 
science being detached from the particular quality of happiness, many waste materials were found to have a positive use, and gases were manufactured from corrupt fats, and valuable chemicals were reclaimed from manure. In fact, New Harmony, where there were two dead utopias, was now noted throughout the nation as a citadel of a dead science. Wholesome cabbages grew along back fences, and there was no ghastly ludicrousness in this, nor in the watermelon sweetening. Doubtless there were a few formula to describe what was happening when nothing was happening. It was believed, however, that science removed as much as possible from the emotions of men would reclaim the world. The drying school was turned to a museum of the natural products of the region. Skulls, bones, rocks, conch shells, a few petrified fishes, gradually to this collection, so paltry to begin with, were added many riches. Grandmother's nightcaps, baby shoes, dolls with battered heads, a skeleton of a horse, a horseshoe, an Indian peace pipe, a rapite shawl, and a harpsichord, which had belonged to Shelley or Shelley's wife. In fact, if anybody had anything he wanted preserved, he sent it to the museum, where it was sure to be tagged and put under glass forever, whether it was a tooth-marked spoon or a pair of old gal- galoshes. I don't think... I, it's got to be galoshes. I thought it was spelled differently. Along with such relics, there were, was added a large oil painting of Robert Owen, a little green at the edges, in the act of purchasing property from George Rapp, a little gray at the edges. While wooden-faced Indians witnessed the strangest transaction in history, which they had never witnessed at all. So in a few years, most men had forgotten their position in latitude and longitude, if they had ever known it at all. Some enjoyed freedom of will, and some enjoyed being enslaved by their wives or circumstance. Some were going to heaven, some were going to hell, and some were going to Vincennes to buy up dead horses. Nature took its course on the whole. William McClure was a good-natured, which William McClure was a good-humored philanthropist. Although he promised to leave his property to New Harmony, he intended to hold the reins so long as he was in his flesh corporal. Unlike King Lear or Robert Owen, he did not propose to wander in the storm of a couple of cosmic, like a, with a couple of cosmic fools. While daughter states argued over a premature inheritance, as he had promised no miracles, his absence from New Harmony, or from the world for that matter, could make little difference in the affairs of men. He was not a messiah. He suffered from various ailments, increasing in the severity each year. When after a few years, William McClure's health seeming about to fail completely, sought the more equitable clime, equable climate of Mexico City, he promised not to return but left Madame F. as his agent in New Harmony, so that none should suffer. He enjoyed in Mexico City many vistas, both old and new, the immensity of mountains, his own immensity. He was amused at the spectacle of himself, propped among satin pillows, and a gilded carriage drawn by winged cherubim, presumably, and six long-tailed, cream-colored horses replete with plumes and bells. What a climax was long life spent in austere mountain climbing. His head lolled, but the old Republican had not lost his common sense, which had been unmixed with imagination and falsehood, or as nearly so as it was possible to come. Though none lived now so luxuriously as he, this carriage was, as he knew, not the rich parasite's equipage, it seemed, but only the deathbed of a two-legged animal whose legs could no longer move beneath him. He still believed that every child should be a shoemaker. He was aware, as ever, of those who labor in the sweat, in the sweat of their brows and have not a roof above their heads. Such a situation, he believed, could not go on forever. He hoped that the workers would become independent of any master, even he who sits in an emblazoned chair above the world of gases, even the pioneer of the infinite. 
Great blobs of fat were almost blotting out his eyes as water drooled from his mouth, and he could swallow not more than a drop of water due to the excessive growth of his head and his throat. But he would not give straw in the wind for all your winged madonnas, your doves of peace, your heavenly mansions, and such non-entities. What he yearned for was Madame F., really, her hand in its thread glove, her utter reliability, the mole on her chin. Nor at this date would he give a straw in the wind for all the riches of all the sultans of Turkey, or a thousand black umbrellas upheld by soldiers of the Chinese emperor to protect his sacred personages from the drizzle of rain. William McClure fattened as he died, fattening as he died, personages from... Bah! William McClure fattening as he died, associated with Aztec runners, and listening mildly to that proverb by which they announced their dinner hour agreed, it is time for the big ones to eat the little ones. This was the last law of life. He would have crossed the high Sierras on foot, if he could have, or died on some lonely mountaintop as a student vultures. Natural history had always interested him, a subject to be studied at the least expense to morals. But the lumbering frame would not move, would not be operated by a cosmic principle of harmony, even for one more rugged climb of climbs. But the head and the feet had faltered, exaggerated beyond their normal size, and there was a sore which would not heal again, and an invasion of vacancy, and a dark star. William McClure hoped only that Madame F. could get to Mexico City before death did, to cheer him with gossip and scold him for his inattention. William McClure, having no other company, was the slightly humorous eyewitness to his own decay, on which he would have liked to have written a series of footnotes, as sense by sense departed from him. As has been said, nobody expected William McClure's coming again. Madame F., during his absence, was an astute manager who knew every sparrow that falleth, and scolded endlessly as she considered the highness of flour, the lowness of sugar, and various crisscrossing lines of the many policies she pursued from dawn to dusk. Her keys rattled like authority. Her tortoiseshell comb was the object of her veneration. Her amethyst brooch, brooch was her reward for subtle Homeric fighting to balance all her accounts on the banks of the Wabash. Her diamond earrings were the memory of her lost love. Her high heels were her aristocracy. Their black satin petticoats somewhat awry, but a symbol of her aloofness. Many keys and an air of slight disdain, as if in spite of her present glory, she was somewhat fallen. She appeared alike in the ballroom, which was a den of carpenters in the poultry sheds, having once managed by similar underhand tactics a thousand souls in Russia, it was believed. She was always poking and prying around and kicking up the dust. She would never let it well enough alone. She would always look the gift horse in the mouth. She was not above spying on a man in his most private moments. Weeks after a man thought he had got by with murder, smoking his pipe behind the fence during working hours, it seemed that Madame F. had seen him, though she, though how she could be among the bushes and in the bookkeeper's office at the same time was just another of life's little mysteries. It was impossible to tell what she was going to do next. No sooner had a man arrived at one conclusion than Madame F. had arrived at another. While no man could see through at Madame F., every man was as trim and transparent as glass to her. There were no mysteries that she knew of. She could even tell what he was going to say to excuse himself before he so much as opened his mouth. Human nature repeated itself with a remarkable monotony, she said. Woe to the man who had the smell of liquor on his breath or a bottle under his bed. He would be ferried over the Wabash scent packing. While most men utterly despised the old woman, most men utterly admired her. She gave them, in some inscrutable way, a sense of comfort, and though proud as Lucifer, bore the weight of labor on her shoulders, so it was no wonder if she lost her temper now and then, for she had a right to. After all, Madame F., dear soul, was getting up in years and would not always be among them. They might as well humor her. Say, shut in his island universe, tried his best to ignore Madame F.'s 
endless rustlings at the boundary line between his domain and hers. If only could shoo that old marsh hen away. In that case, his happiness would have been complete, if not perfect. As it was, he was harassed beyond measure. The moment he seemed to be getting somewhere with his natural researches, there stood Madame F. at the doorway, with some new story to tell, some new lament about the littleness of eggs this season, the flatness of a sick hen's eggs, or perhaps only another count of her husband, who had perished after three days of wedded life, and say did not blame him. Madame F., with her self-attachment, her perpetual widowhood and its enjoyment, and her endless connivings to make both ends meet, though they were meeting very well, gave, say, a pain in the head, a throbbing pain. She was a worse threat upon the sanctity of nature, in his opinion, than any European despot or apocryphal horse. She was a continual intrusion upon his and nature's privacy. What he wanted was a wilderness, and what she wanted was a weedless garden. Fortunately, the yogi butterfly of night, suspended by an invisible thread, was something not comprehended by Madame F.'s economy. There were emotions too subtle for her vision to detect seemingly, and some virtues which lay beyond the capacity of her understanding. Say, painting butterflies at every stage of their development, winged or wingless, young or senile, found an ethereal flame implicit in all aspects of being, the great and small, the world above and the world below, repeated in microcosm. The macrocosm was problem enough, but think of the swarms of little worlds, each reflecting the whole, the infinitely large, the infinitely small, as if this world were limitless. Say was enraptured to behold this world as the one true fable, having no rim and no exterior star, for everywhere was everywhere. Even Madame F., whom he would have excluded, he found repeated among certain anthills and marauding beetles. Himself he felt to be only another gossamer wafting in the infinite, only another fungus translated upward into sap. He was astonished each year to see how a butterfly could survive extreme coldness, be frozen to a rod of translucent glass, be hung like an icicle on the bleak December bush, yet revived to the fullness of its being in spring, if it had not miscalculated poor aerial navigator on its position as to the direction of the onslaught of winds. True, such butterflies fell in the spring of the year like immense ragged snowflakes, their wings having been hacked away by greedy birds, or accidents, anomalies, losses, Yet how beautiful was nature, a musical chord which could never be covetous or jealous-hearted, since the whole was always the whole. Say found that it would be impossible to assign morality to one world and nature to another. William McClure, answering Say's complaints, had said that he trusted Madame to run his little world. She has a great share of ambition and wish to rule, which is perfectly gratified by her present situation, having the command of half a town, thirty pupils, and other, others, with eight thousand acres of land, settling fast, with farmers from all countries. So that though the beauty in one object is the same as the beauty in another, and nature is ever kind, there seemed to be Madame F., a separate sphere, intrusive, scolding, always out of order, always contingent onto this. Madame F., when she was in New Harmony, was irritating because, in spite of all her mistakes, she was terrifyingly efficient. Madame F., when she was absent from New Harmony, seemed as precious as the spirit of nature herself. Say found it difficult, if not impossible, to understand Madame, Madame's peculiar bookkeeping system, written in crisscrossing lines on unnumbered slips of paper, in wild disarray in a desk drawer, like Shakespeare's manuscripts when he left London for the last time, with little care for his reputation or his immortality. 
Seemingly, Madame F.'s bookkeeping, unlike Shakespeare's writings, had no rhyme or reason which anyone but herself could comprehend. Three ducks owing on one slip, eight pounds lard on another, though everything was perfectly clear to her. And how she had worried about hog sickness was evident. To Madame F.'s enjoying herself in Paris, Say wrote that he missed her sadly, sadly, and appreciated her in her absence as never before. Here he was, caught in the delectable condition of a toad under the harrow, with no hope but of her coming in the spring, which would be the error of his deliverance from New Harmony. Then he, too, might be free to visit the great museums of Paris in search of further aspects of nature and conch, conchology. Now, at this moment, he was palled by the wilderness. Alas, Madame F., in spite of good intentions, for she had loved New Harmony, was infinitely delayed. She sailed from France to Veracruz. By arduous carriage journey, she traversed the road built by Montezuma over treacherous mountains. She reached Mexico City in time to say goodbye to William McClure, whose hand she held at the last. When he could no longer hear her, she did not speak. A few days later, she was herself stricken by a fatal illness. New Harmony, the disseminator reported, had lost its most distinguished citizens as if by one blow. New Harmony would never be the same again. That was spring should have been the error of his deliverance, and say, felt a strange coldness enclosing him and little hoped for resurrection now, little imagined that he might not be hacked away by giant birds. His days ahead were few, and Autumn say succumbed as a result of infection by the germs of malaria from the river bottoms, and New Harmony, the disseminator reported, had lost its great lover of the spirit of nature in the trackless wild. When, many years later, Say's grave was opened, he was found, the story goes, although it cannot be verified, to have occupied it with a strange woman whose hair cast a shining light around her. Nobody had seen a red-headed woman as such as this in old New Harmony. All the other red-headed women would be, could be accounted for one by one. Perhaps this was the spirit of nature whom Say had ever sought. It was a little book which fell to dust and ashes as it was lifted from the claw-like delicate bones of her hand. Not Condillac's logic, of which Mr. McClure had left the extant edition, along with an empty convent, to New Harmony and the workers of the world. All right. Well, we are fast coming up on the end of Angel in the Forest. Oh, I hope you've been enjoying it. This is my second time through. And, um, sorry for yawning there. This is my second time through, and still, I'm just... How she's really dissected America and our search for utopia. Really, really good. Alrighty. Thank you for listening. Bye.